0: Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein policy directors Lori Haru, Brian Wild, Drew Littman, and Brian McGuire joined strategic advisor Mark Begich to discuss the current state of the tax reform bill, expectations on timing, and if a bill will ultimately get passed, as well as the corporate tax rate and its impact on international competition.
1: Welcome back to our series of podcasts by Brownstein, and uh, today we're going to talk about tax. We have four great folks here from the Brownstein firm that have a lot of years of experience uh, on the Hill and here at Brownstein in regards to um, tax policy. So first, we have Brian Wild, uh, policy director at Brownstein. has over two decades of experience in Washington. During that time, he has worked at the White House in both the House and the Senate and in the private sector. A highly regarded Republican advisor, Brian represents a broad a range of business and trade associations and manages extensive public affair campaigns and provides policy advisory and strategy on energy, tax, labor, transportation and health care issues. Also joined with Drew Littman, policy director, previously served as Senator Al Franken's chief of staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislative policy and press initiatives. Before that, he served in the office of Senator Barbara Boxer, four of those years as a policy director. Immediately before joining Brownstein this year, Drew served as senior counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burrell. Also joined, Brian McGuire, policy director, was most recently Senator Mitch McConnell's chief of staff, where he advises on strategic communications, politics, and policy. Before that, he served for eight years in a variety of senior communication roles in Senator McConnell's Senate leadership office. Outside of McConnell's office, Brian consulted for the NRSC during Senator Jeff Flake's 2012 election and as a speechwriter for the Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development under Bush. His writing has appeared in publications including The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Time, USA Today, and Politico. We're also joined by Lori Haryu, Policy Director, previously served as Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to Congressman Kevin Brady, Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. While working as a political appointee for President George Bush, Lori was the head of all congressional intergovernment affairs for the International Trade Administration and U.S. Department of Commerce. There, she provides strategic counsel to senior officials within the Bush administration and with primary liaison to all House and Senate members and staff on the passage of trade agreements, enforcement of international trade laws and promoting American exports, intellectual property rights, protection, and market access and compliance. The list is long with our four guests today from the Brownstein Firm. We're very happy to have you here. It gives a sense, hopefully, to our listeners the the breadth and the the amount of experience all of you have collectively. So the small issue today is tax policy. In theory, and I'm going to start with Lori because it's in the House. They tell us that maybe this week uh, they will pass something on the floor. I heard from a Republican today, a House member, that uh, they're concerned, he's he's from a Northeast state, concerned about property tax exemptions and all those kinds of deductions and so forth, but concerned and and is probably a no vote. So do you think the Republicans have the vote to get it off the floor? And uh, where does it go from there?
2: Well, everything I've heard is that they will have the votes. They expect to have the votes um, on Thursday. To pass the bill, and um, you know, I think optimism is running high. You never know what can happen at the last minute, <laughs> particularly in the House. But um, a lot of the people that you that normally would perhaps be causing a little bit of controversy, have been pretty supportive of the bill. And I know that there are still issues that remain for some members on the uh, state and local deduction. But I also think the committee made a lot of progress in addressing those concerns by including a... a
1: there's a cap, a cap now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And is there is there a, a group, I know there's always been in the Republican uh, conference, there's always a group of individuals who are deficit hawks. Is that playing into this at all at this point, or are they kind of get it passed, let's see what the Senate does, then go from there?
2: I think that's some of it, but I also think that, um, and my colleague Brian can probably address this a little bit more, being more of a budget person than I am, but um, I think that for a lot of the deficit hawks, they believe that economic growth certainly outweighs any deficit that may be incurred because they would view it as probably being a temporary condition. And over a long term, the economic growth would far surpass whatever the deficit is.
1: Brian, Brian Weld?
3: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that Republicans and certainly a lot of conservative Republicans are still uh, consider themselves deficit hawks or debt hawks. Um, that being said, if you're going to have a debt or a deficit, they would prefer it be done on the on the tax side of the ledger and not on the spending side of the ledger. So uh, I think we're seeing them take that preference right now and believe that there's a dynamic effect of lowering rates and, and moving forward. So I don't see a lot of opposition.
0: Yeah, can I just step in there? I mean, I, absolutely. I, I don't Brian. mean this as a partisan comment, but I do think it's notable that Democrats, who for the last eight years have added $9.3 trillion to the deficit and didn't seem to be concerned about it then, are concerned about it when that money is, um, in their view, being added uh, by giving it back to the people who produced it? So it doesn't seem to matter if the money is being spent by the government, but it does seem to matter if the government is giving it back to the people who earned it in the first place. And I think that's a fundamental divide in the party right now and sort of
1: interesting to just note. I love, I can feel Drew on my left side here uh, <laughs> calmly listening to your comment and anxious to probably participate in it. So, Drew, I mean, you worked for Al Franken. I mean, the Democrats in the Senate, it seems, at least conversations I've had with several. Uh, senators over the last few days is um, some might see some opportunity for amendments, but a lot of them are basically going to,
4: oh, I think 100 percent going to be no. Uh, I think so, too. One of the things we've been watching, and, and, and we've talked about it among us and with you, is whether any of the 10 Democratic senators who are up for reelection in states that Donald Trump won would feel either obliged to or mm-hmm. would want to uh, move over to the president's side and work more closely with the Republicans. That seemed to be an open possibility until fairly recently. I think um, we heard from one senator um, who was at the meeting that the president called. Uh, they were in a room with Gary Cohn, and the president, I think, uh, called him through speakerphone. They came out unconvinced uh, that there would be room for compromise or that— uh, politically, it was in their best interest to compromise. I, I think that um, the Virginia election results we're speaking now exactly a week after uh, Election Day, and the Virginia election results would seem to indicate that Democrats have a stronger hand to play politically. I don't want to overinterpret those results, but I think uh, they will have emboldened Democrats to hold off on, on a compromise. Uh, that they might make otherwise for political reasons. Do you think let –
1: let me give you – I did this with a, a rec- another podcast. I'm going to give you a statistic, and then is this an underpinning to this whole tax policy? In 1945, for every dollar an individual paid for taxes, corporations paid a dollar. Today, that ratio is for every five dollars that an individual pays, one dollar is paid by the corporation, uh, a corporation or corporations. So, is there an underpinning here of a shared responsibility? That's an imbalance now that is causing this desire by both, in a sense, both parties to figure out what do we do here, where Democrats lean heavier to let's get that five ratio down a little bit, and the Republicans are both in the in the individual piece, but also heavy in the corporate piece. Is that, I mean, any comment on that? I mean, that to me is a startling statistic when you think about it. And when you think about shared responsibility, Brian.
3: I think that there's a lot of economic theory that's happened since 1945 that, that believes that corporations, there is no such thing as a corporate tax. It's just another way to collect a fee on individuals, that um, whatever tax corporations pay, it's a, it's a cost of doing business, and they pass it on through higher prices that eventually... The consumer picks up, so
1: you're not arguing that just individuals should pay tax, and corporations pay nothing. Well, I think that
3: I, I, I think ultimately that's kind of the, the the process. I think that's why you see the movement that we're going down to, um, where. Um, Individuals at one in this tax plan. Everybody's getting a tax rate cut. Uh, individuals get a rate cut. Corporations get a rate cut. It's 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 across the board. But I think that that the reason there's so much emphasis on the corporate side is is because we're trying to come up with a more efficient way to compete internationally. And ultimately, if you raise taxes domestically on these companies, the consumers pay the price, and we have fewer jobs. Uh, slower economic growth and and um, and ultimately companies leave in America. So that's what we're trying to Another do. Another
0: way to put that I think is to say that Republicans think that it's impossible to resolve the question that you raised probably ever, but certainly at this political moment, Mm -hmm. where does balance lie? But one thing we do know, and this is something that Republicans and Democrats, including Barack Obama, agreed to, is that our uh, international system is hugely uncompetitive, and that this is an opportunity to create some balance there, where there's clear imbalance, and that both parties seem to agree that the U.S. is way disadvantaged um, vis-a-vis foreign competitors because of the punishingly high corporate tax rate we have.
1: Laurie, do you think that in this broad, I mean, here we are, House is going to do their thing, the Senate's going to do their, at the end of the day, is it really reform or is it just cuts for certain groups and that's good enough for today? I mean, I shouldn't say that it's good enough. It's that we'll be settled on versus what I think some, I think your former boss would love to do massive reform. I think that's the sense I always get when I hear him speak and so forth. Um, but it seems like it's just becoming more difficult as we get close to the end. I mean, as of end of this week, for example, the IRS actually swaps their software out a lot of people don't realize this by the end of this week they will tell accountants across the country you cannot submit electronically your material for the next couple of weeks while they swap out uh, their new formulas and everything for next year so mechanically there's an issue that's about to happen here but is it just going to be at the end of the day some cuts or do you think there's you know just part one to part two later what's your what's your thinking again recognizing where your boss your former boss was was wanted to really do massive reform here, or at least started on that format.
2: And I'm still a believer. (laughs) (laughs) She's optimistic. This is good. I'm I'm still his disciple in that thinking. And and I just think that um, I know from the House side, they view this as a a once-in-a-generation opportunity. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they're not going to waste it by, wasted with quotation marks, they're not going to waste it by simply doing cuts when they have an opportunity to also do more significant reform, which also contributes to the cost of what individuals and businesses um, remove from their bottom lines Mm -hmm. because they spend so much time and money trying to comply with the code. Mm -hmm. So to get rid of some of that underbrush is very important to the House.
3: This is real reform. I think both the House bill and the Senate bill, yes, cuts are a part of it, but it, it is a shift in priority from a... Uh, a tax that is anti-competitive into a territorial system. We we're going to meet the world standard on taxes on the corporate front. It emphasizes economic growth. We have uh, immediate expensing to uh, to try to spur capital uh, investment. Uh, on the individual side, we're we're restructuring the code in the House completely down to three brackets uh, and and getting rid of lots of. Uh, different uh, exemptions and deductions that have been created over the decades to encourage uh, or discourage specific behavior. So it's, it's a real reform um, that's, that's, that's moving. There is difference between the House and the Senate, but it's, it's real reform in both places.
4: Drew? Yeah, you raised the issue of, of the need for the corporate tax cut, and and I just want to talk about the broad context because I think it's significant, certainly compared to the 1986 tax reform. The economy is expanding. The president, you know, tweets out um, exultant, boasts about how well the economy is doing. Unemployment is low, but interest rates have also stayed low, and the stock market is relatively high. Housing values are also high, though there doesn't seem to be a bubble anywhere. So the economy is doing not fantastically, but it's doing fairly well. Economists are not saying we need stimulus to get the economy going, which would typically be one of the reasons for a tax cut, certainly an individual uh, tax cut. If there was ever a time where we could afford to reform the system, reform the corporate system, make ourselves more internationally competitive um, in a a – gradual, measured way, this is it. There's no imperative. We're not in a recession. Mm-hmm. Unemployment is not 10%. In front of us. The stock market has not dropped by half. Right. Inflation, you know, inflation's is not 10%. We have the time to, to work this out. I know people have priorities that, that um, they've been seeking to advance for a long time, but we are not in a state of economic crisis right mm-hmm. now.
1: The argument on tax reform is that if, if it's passed, then we'll get out of this uh, you know, moderate growth or slow growth, and suddenly you have a boom. Um, is that a real, or is that something Well, let me put it another way. You have 2018 elections and 2020 presidential election. If you think of the cycle of this tax reform, when does it really kick in, and who's going to benefit? Do 18ers benefit, or really 2020, maybe. Well,
4: let me go out on, on a limb and say, uh, politically, no one.
1: No one benefits. Because because I optimism. think what we've seen from polling
4: <laughs> in the past is that people hate paying taxes so much, understandably, that even if they've received the tax cut, the next income tax payment that they make with that tax cut in place, after they make it, they believe they paid more in taxes yeah. because paying that ta- writing that check is just so painful. Right. So if, you, if you're paying $25,000 in federal income taxes and you've got a cut of $300, it's still 25000 more dollars that you paid. So, so I don't know. There's certainly with, with donors, there's the opportunity for real gain here. But with individuals, voters at large, I don't think there's much opportunity for gain.
3: Brian Two Wild. things. I think you have the, the the actual physical side of it. So, even though tax cuts for the individuals will kick in for the 2018 tax cycle, you don't, you don't actually fill out that paperwork and submit it to the IRS until April of 2019. So, uh, the taxes that they, the tax forms and going to the HR, HR block and, and doing whatever they do in April of next year will look exactly like it did in April of last year. And so... Um, So individuals aren't going to know – they're not going to see the impact as a piece of paper until after the 18 elections. That being said, I think the number one indicator for – the president that's in cycle in an off year um, to do well is is how the economy is doing, what unemployment is like, and so I think that the way that the, that both the House and Senate are approaching this is that they're going to they're going to goose the economy as quick as they possibly can, and hopefully by November of next year uh, we will have um, a, a spike in GDP growth, and our unemployment rate will continue to stay low, and our productivity rates will will, will go. Uh, significantly higher, so uh, I think I think there's there's hope that from the Republican side that 18 election will be impacted by this.
1: We have a lot of clients here at Brownstein that I mean this is a big issue, right? What's going to happen with the tax policy in a lot of ways? What's the advice that you think is the most uh, w- when people call or they we're meeting with them or we're taking them on the hill and we're meeting with l- legislators? what, as they finish those meetings or they finish the conversations with us, what's the thing that sticks that you want to leave in their mind about this tax policy? What's the... What's the takeaway for them, I guess? And I, it seems to me that it's unsure. There's some movement. Movement. There's something that's going to happen. I mean, that is clear in my mind. It's going to be small or big, but something will happen. Is that the kind of sense you have to leave with the client at this point and work the details? Or what's the sense, Brian? I think that's right. I think that
0: this train is moving. It's moving pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really kind of. Um, noticeable silence on both sides of the, of the chamber of um, of the Capitol, which suggests to me that, is that this a is a calm some...
1: before the storm. <laughs> no, I think it's
0: a calm before the passage. <laughs> I think that um, the fact that we haven't seen any, I mean, there's been fights that, have, that people have tried to gin up, but they don't seem like um, hugely uh, impactful fights to me. I think that this is going to pass. And um, I think you know clients should have some fairly high expectation that it does. And, and and my view is looking at least at the Senate version a little bit more closely, that this is something that um Is most the Senate more
1: likely to be the vehicle or is it the House? What's the Vehicle here.
0: This will go to conference, yeah. and it's hard to say how it's going to look in the end. Um, mm-hmm. And depending on who you look, you talk to, right. you know, um, it, it's hard to know. But the, the the fundamentals are such that this looks like a massive, lasting middle class tax cut mm-hmm. and a a, comp- a, a a corporate tax cut that's really going to put us in a much more competitive situation. So, um, I think that the, the question the clients need to ask themselves is is whether those um, this kind of pillars of this, or something that they can live with, and whether they're happy with, and if that's the case, then um, that that should be kind of exciting prospect for them mm-hmm. um, to be in this new tax dispensation following this bill's hopeful passage. But um, you know, ev- everybody has a tendency to want to focus on the things that they don't like about a bill, and I think you know one thing that is worth sharing with clients is just um, whether. On balance, they'll be happier without tax reform passing at all, or whether um, they can live with something that they don't love about it, um, but that you know they like. And and if it's the case that they're better off with the bill passing than not, then I think you know a couple of pats on the back to the people who are working hard to pass this wouldn't be a bad idea. Any other thoughts on that that people want
1: to give on that, Drew?
4: Yeah, I I think that um, you have a scenario somewhat like health care reform where it just takes a couple of outliers to, to thwart the plan to pass a big comprehensive bill like this. And, you know, health care reform, health care is, is a huge presence in the economy, but the Affordable Care Act... Less than 10 percent of Americans who get health insurance get it through the Affordable Care Act. So the immediate effect on most people's constituents would not have been that great, even if you had repealed it. Mm -hmm. Tax reform is different. Potentially touches everybody and touches them as soon as they do their next tax return um, after enactment. I think you've got a mid-December special election in Alabama with a Republican who is running principally against Majority Leader McConnell, more than against his Democratic opponent. So, so Luther Strange, the temporary Alabama senator, is gone. He's, he was a, a, a very reliable vote for the majority leader. So you either have a rogue Republican or a Democrat. That potentially gets you down to 51 votes for a bill. Senator Collins, Senator Corker have both said that they won't vote for a bill uh, that raises the deficit. Now, there may be nuance to that or footnotes or caveats that I missed. Is there Rand Paul out there somewhere? Rand Paul's always out there, you know. (laughs) So, so, So potentially, I don't, you know, maybe in the end they decide it's too important to get a win. But if you take these senators literally, it's hard to see it or it's quite, you can see quite easily how you could fail to get a majority to pass a bill.
3: I, I just I you I think we can debate on whether we're making law here or or not, um, but if we are making law, um, this is the this is then you need to be at the table and and you know I think the message to to the clients that I work with and others is is you know now is the time that that sitting and watching this process and not participating in it. Um, from a client, perspective, from a client, client perspective, is just it's it's dangerous to just assume that we're not making law, and so I think that the assumption should be that this bill is going to move forward, and you know it's probably going to have a conference, and we're probably going to continue to have changes. We're you know in day two of a Senate markup, and and uh, I think it's very fluid right now on on amendments and language continues to change, and so you know I, I think to to stay in the game um, to look at at the bill text that's out there and see how it impacts. Your company, um, and if if you uh, if you feel like like you're have uh, changes that you'd either like to see or need to see, then then you need to be doing that right right now. Corey,
2: it was similar to what I was going to say, um, and I would just add that not only once the bill passes and becomes law, then Congress will have technical corrections, mm, right, where and there regulatory issues, and right? regulatory issues. So that's also what I've been telling clients, and. Um, you know, unfortunately, it sounds horrible, but it, it is true. If you are not in very self serving, it sounds self serving, but if you <laughs> it's are, it's our not,
1: podcast. We can do this. <laughs> this is true. Um,
2: if you're not voicing your or um, expressing your opinions in D.C. on legislation that they're talking about. Then the assumption is by the policymakers that you're fine with it,
1: right? And then when you come Silence in very late,
2: yes, absolutely, and um, and it kind of goes back to the old saying: if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right?
1: Right. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> and in Washington D.C., there's a lot of menus. <laughs> th- that's right.
2: And so, anyway, it's um, it's important to be at the pit table, be constructive, and um, be communicative.
1: Let me ask one uh, crystal ball question to you all, and that is. So we are here uh, middle of November. Uh, Does this tax reform tax cut bill get done uh, before the end of the year in some form or another? Or are they going to be back in January to try to close this out?
4: We, sh- we, we should note that we're nearing the end of the continuing resolution to fund the government. So there are other fiscal potential crises going on, even as we consider this. And, and that alone may make it hard to come to closure on a tax bill. There's only so much bandwidth. Do all my Republican colleagues disagree with me? <laughs> I think
1: I have a feeling they do. Let's just see. Lori, what do you think? I
4: think it'll be done this
1: year. Okay.
2: Right.
4: I agree.
0: This is hitting all of its <laughs> deadlines so far. And... Um, I think that's a sign that this is is going to be one of the earlier, not later, uh, exercises we get done. Brian yeah,
3: I've, I've always been a pessimist. I, there's, there's no uh, empirical evidence that this Congress can actually make law. They haven't done so yet. Um, Such a positive. But um, I think they do it this time. I think that the... Uh, as Drew said, I think the political pressure of the Alabama election and uh, the, the Virginia and New Jersey elections last week um, are real. And um, and they're hitting all their deadlines, as Brian said. So I, I, I'm, I, think, I think we're going to do it.
1: Drew, I think you're outnumbered. And so we'll see what happens. But what a great panel of uh, information regarding tax reform and tax cuts and what's going on in Congress. And to folks that are listening, again, this just gives you a sense of uh, the – in knowledge and depths of information that uh, the Brownstein team has here on tax policy. Thank you all very much for being here today.
0: Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.